I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico, the new youth pastor your church just hired to come teach you about the Trinity. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, I'm looking for that promotion to senior pastor. Yeah. Soon I'm be your boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, <laughs> please ascend the ranks. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week on The Magnificast, we're still on that evangelical kick. You can't get us off it for another week or two. Um, last week, we looked at Bethany Morton's research on Walmart, and we started thinking about how evangelicalism isn't just ideas about the Bible or about God, but it's also related to, you guessed it, material interests. <laughs> so surprising. <laughs> <laughs> we get to do something a little bit similar this week, talking with Darren Dochuk, the Associate Professor of History at Notre Dame, and the author of Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. It's a story about a lot of things, but one that really attracted us was about how oil helped to create evangelicalism as we know it today. So not only did oilmen fund institutions and churches that spread a specific kind of Christianity in the world, but oil itself shaped whole communities and theologies. Um, it's a really interesting look at how one of the most important and dangerous pieces of the global economy, uh, oil, influenced the creation of evangelicalism and also how evangelicalism is still influencing the world of oil production and politics, even down to Zionist oil ventures in Israel or uh, the evangelical support base for Republicans uh, right now. And we've got bonus Canada content this week uh, because of uh, Alberta, the so-called Texas of Canada. You heard it right. Canada alert. We got it. We got it this week in this one. <laughs> five out of five maple leaves. <laughs> cool. Well, it's a great book and you should definitely go buy it. Uh, I think it's like $20 on Amazon and it's a big book. So it's a lot of book for $20 if you think about it. <laughs> Dollar per page. It's a great value. <laughs> there you go. All right. So let's uh, toss it over to Darren. So whenever we have an author on the show, we always ask them to give like an elevator pitch for their book and their project. Um, so uh, maybe you could give us an elevator pitch. What were you trying to do with Anointed with Oil? Um, what made you want to write it? Sure. Well, I'll do my best, and it's good to be with you, Matt and Dean. Uh, the, my attempt was to write a religious history of a material uh, with outsized economic and political importance in American life, and to do so in three registers, I guess you could say, or three kind of realms of reciprocity. Uh, first of all, I was curious in uh, just how generations of oil hunters, executives, uh, preachers, 
oil families like the Rockefellers and Pews uh, really kind of saw their labor in oil uh, and the wealth produced as, as sanctioned by God as, as something that uh, they were anointed with. Uh, and then in return, how they used their oil wealth to promote their particular theological and political uh, worldviews and interests uh, in, with great effect, of course, not just in business, but in church and politics. Uh, the second register, I guess you could say, is kind of the highest altitude. It's, it's the national level, uh, looking at how America itself seemed to be anointed with oil. Uh, it had, of course, special access to oil earlier than other societies and, and really came to dominate it for a century. Uh, and so wanting to show how that uh, how the labor in this industry and the competition between oilmen uh, really kind of drove the engines of American global expansion uh, in the late 19th through the 20th century, and in turn, how that was kind of framed uh, in, in, and naturalized uh, in, in, in kind of divine terms, the way in which America's supremacy in oil was seen as its providence, uh, but also its burden really to, to civilize and modernize the world. And, and we can talk about examples uh, of that if you'd like. Uh, finally, thirdly, and, and perhaps this is kind of the realm or the, the altitude at which I was most excited to work, and that was the communal, uh, just how oil's anointing uh, seemingly of oil patches of North America creates unique religious and political cultures, how places like Texas and Oklahoma and Alberta uh, come to kind of possess this commodity as if it is theirs, and in turn, how that will shape the way in which they view the state, the way in which they view uh, the church uh, as well, with, with great uh, and, and important outcomes. So I don't know if that's an ele elevator pitch, uh, maybe for a longer elevator ride, but, uh, but that, that's what I attempted to do. And I, I came to the, the topic uh, through a number of avenues, if you will, one of them being personal, and, and I kind of wear it on my sleeve in the book. I grew up in Alberta, an oil patch, uh, the Texas of Canada. I grew up during the 1980s, which was a, a pretty tough time uh, for oil and for Alberta oil, uh, and uh, also grew up in, in a church that was very much tied to this industry. And so there was a sense in which I could see a connection there, and I wanted to explore that. Uh, more substantively, it grew out of my, my first project as well, which you know, had me spending a lot of time looking at evangelicals in the Southwest uh, and California. And it seemed like every corner I turned, there'd be a, a church steeple, quite literally, uh, and an oil derrick. And it occurred to me that this might be uh, something interesting to pair together. Uh, and, and in terms of even my scholarship, just pairing them as a way to get at other issues, curiosities uh, that I don't think we've, we've spent much time with. Uh, the connection, for instance, between evangelicalism and energy, uh, and of course, the impact that has on environmental politics as well, right up to our current moment. Uh, so that's kind of how I came to the project and, and what I, I sought to, to do. Yeah, thanks so much, Darren. That's a really great uh, way of getting a lot of themes on the on the ground here, and we'll try to kind of circle back to all of them, I think. But maybe we'll just start with the third one, um, kind of expand some of that point a little bit. And I think that's something that also we, we've really stuck out to us uh, just by virtue of this podcast. So over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about evangelicalism as a theme and just trying to work out how it emerges and what kind of ideas make it tick and that sort of a thing. Um, and your book really does an, an interesting job kind of coming at, at all of that in a... a, a I guess, underexplored angle. So how do you think that your book contributes to how people think about evangelicalism as a historical force and also ideologically? You know, you mentioned like oil produces certain kind of religious communities. Uh, maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, 
Right. Great question. And, and you know, in, in many ways, I, I wanted to kind of get beyond uh, the term evangelicalism and, and evangelical, uh, even though, of course, it appears and it is at the heart of what I'm doing. Uh, so, you know, my goal as a historian, uh, as a religious historian, is really trying to uh, reveal hidden histories of, of religion and, and, in this case, evangelicalism in the past, uh, to embed it in, in kind of broader uh, structural and historical context. So, I mean, there's a few, I guess you could say, in which uh, I try to kind of reimagine or, or place evangelicalism and its history in a new light, uh, as you just mentioned, and as I, I uh, opened with, very much interested in in uh, how evangelicalism uh, kind of assumes a certain property in a, in a certain kind of space, a certain kind of capitalist space, uh, in this case, the oil patch, uh, how evangelical eschatology notions of the end times, uh, the kind of the value systems in which evangelicalism uh, encourages from its kind of fiercely individualistic and independent uh, kind of streak to its, uh, uh, you know, being attuned to risk and to crisis, uh, theology of a personal encounter with an active creator. Uh, these are all kind of elements that are so kind of entrenched in the oil patch. And so I try to, to make those connections uh, and, and to do so with, with close kind of investigation of uh, how evangelicalism and its institutions and ideas take shape on pla- in, in, in these places. Uh, a second context is, um, you know, Tying it, really seeing evangelicalism as a certain species of a particular kind of extractive capitalism, uh, and again, happy to flesh this out more, but one of the driving tensions in the book, really the driving tension is between kind of these small independent oil producers and the major oil companies uh, that come out of the Rockefeller uh, standard oil monopoly of the 19th century. Uh, And what I try to show is how these two kind of corporate realms, these two sectors of oil, uh, also represent kind of two sectors of American Protestantism, also of of kind of two different spirits of capitalism. Uh, Rockefeller's Standard Oil, really illustrative of, of what I say, of what we know of as Max Weber's kind of vision of a Protestant bureaucratic outlook, uh, a quest to capture and organize the marketplace, uh, to rationalize, and, and by extension also to uh, to kind of create an ecumenical uh, internationalist agenda that that uh, can see America kind of uh, uplift the world through missions, but also through the spread of a social gospel. And that clashes with back to evangelicalism, uh, evangelicalism being really what I see as the heart of wildcat Christianity, uh, which refers to that kind of capitalist spirit of these independent oilmen uh, who exhibit charismatic and heroic qualities that Weber thought would die out in modern America. Uh, and I, I show how uh, their kind of speculative free fiercely free market ethic uh, moves to the West and there kind of attaches itself to uh, a homegrown evangelical culture uh, and both uh, kind of transforming evangelicalism uh, and radicalizing it in in very important ways uh, with, again, political outcomes. So those are two contexts. And, and, and again, happy to talk more also about the, the politics of this, too. Uh, I'm very much trying to weave a long story of evangelical institutions uh, and ideologies uh, really impacting, really shaping uh, the politics of energy and environment uh, in uh, the modern era. We know much about you know, the Christian right and its championing of social values, but I'm trying to say that uh, it's not just family values that matter, it's fuel values as well. 
Yeah, I think that's a really helpful insight. It's something that we've been kind of getting into in the last few weeks, uh, seeing how, um, you know, evangelicalism has been a big part of creating like the ideology of um, Christian free enterprise or something. Uh, that's how Bethany Morton put it in a book we read last week. But right. that's, yeah. Um, well, uh, your book is, uh, you know, primarily a history and you lay out all of these really interesting history, like historical dynamics and tensions. And I was wondering if you could give us like a little bit of that in podcast format. I mean, obviously you can't go through the entire book because that'd be a little bit much. <laughs> but but um, yeah, could you give us a little, just like a little taste of that religious biography of a natural resource that you do in your book? Uh, sure, happy to. I, I, you know, I can certainly... Uh, highlight a few pivots I think that are are both important to the story, but I would hope uh, interesting. And again, looking for this kind of hidden uh, history of American uh, religion, religion and politics. Uh, I think there are a number of quite revealing points uh, in the book, turning points in the book. Uh, and, and, and in general, I, I hope the reader comes away from the book uh, kind of surprised at just how uh, our history of modern American Christianity uh, is, is very much tied to the history of petroleum. Uh, if we want to try to understand the fundamentalist modernist controversy uh, that plays out in Protestantism in the 19-teens and 20s, uh, it might not be such a bad idea, I think, to understand just how uh, this plays out against the backdrop of the politics of oil between these independent producers and the Rockefellers, how they take that kind of political clash into the churchly realm. So just briefly, I mean, some of the, the kind of the big moments, I think, turns in this religious uh, history of oil. Uh, I mentioned earlier, of course, this clash of independence and major oil uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. We know what happens in oil's first frontier of Western Pennsylvania. The Rockefellers take over by the 1890s. Uh, they control Rockefeller and Standard Oil controls uh, over 90% of all oil refining in the country. And again, the United States is by far the most uh, productive, largest, most powerful oil producing state at this time. So this is a lot of power uh, for the Rockefeller family. Uh, and this, this basically forces smaller producers out of Pennsylvania. Where do they go? They go west of the Mississippi. Uh, they uh, are going to scour the earth in California, Texas for oil. Uh, Standard was not going to move out there. They don't think oil uh, exists. In fact, they're going to mock these wildcatters for, for doing so. But the wildcatters are are going to prove them wrong. And with uh, huge discoveries such as Spindletop in 1901 in Southeast Texas, we are going to see a radical shift in the oil business in the United States. And what happens is these small producers all of a sudden hit it big. Uh, they're fiercely independent uh, religion, uh, their faith and, and their, their place in, in their oil sector is going to uh, give them new opportunity now to grow their own institutions, uh, their own churches, their uh, own seminaries. And uh, of course, one of the most important in this case is Lyman Stewart, uh, who is going to start Union Oil of California, uh, and then see great success in the early 20th century, and he will use his money uh, to fund conservative missionaries who are going to counter the Rockefeller-funded missionaries abroad. Uh, they're going to build a church, they're going to build a, a school, uh, all to promote their kind of wildcat Christianity and the, the conservative values that go along with it. So that that's one point. I'm not going to you know take too too long to to kind of map out a few others. Uh, but another turn is definitely the 1930s because of a huge oil strike in East Texas, uh, once again giving life to the wildcat ethic of this region and giving 
institutional economic power to a new class of independent oil producers. Uh, and among them is going to be the Pew family, uh, which is, uh, of course, its, it's oil company is Sunoco, Sun Oil. Uh, and in the 1930s, uh, just as the New Deal is trying to impose order on this new oil field, trying to uh, impose regulations, uh, and rein in the excesses of oil production in East Texas, which again, taking place during the 1930s in one of the poorest regions of the country, uh, you can understand the, ex the excesses. Uh, they are going to start really a, a, a kind of a, a, a political movement against the New Deal state, uh, and the pews are going to help lead that. Uh, so concerns with rising uh, kind of expanding state power, uh, its regulatory body, uh, concern with oil and the possession of, of, of that commodity, uh, as well as other values being challenged uh, in their estimation is going to drive uh, this new class of wildcatters forward. And in the post-World War II period, which we can talk about, I'll, I'll pause at this, uh, they are going to basically be uh, the heart and soul of the new kind of sunbelt conservatism that's going to come out of this region and really uh, uh, kind of redefine the Republican Party, uh, redefine the American political landscape in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, uh, we want to get to that Cold War stuff, especially um, in a little bit and kind of see how that builds some infrastructure for maybe understanding what's going on today in evangelicalism. But uh, maybe just to add one more like piece to give you one more chance to do an, an overview. Um, you mentioned right in the beginning that uh, for a lot of these oilmen, it was seen that the natural resource was seen as God's special blessing. You know, that's the, the premise of the title of the book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that works theologically too, right? It's this really kind of speculative search for oil, for a resource. And then you said earlier, you know, they come to see that as sort of like theirs, as something that they've, they've possessed by divine right or gift. So maybe you could just kind of uh, expand on that a little bit more. Sure. Uh, yes, of course. The, again, this, this natural resource is theologized. Uh, it is at the root of politics, religion and politics. Uh, and, you know, I guess the, the origins uh, is really the 1860s. Um, I found it uh, fascinating just how oil's discovery during the Civil War uh, kind of seemed to guarantee its mythological proportions. Uh, it seemed like uh, sacred from the beginning. It served as a healing bomb, really, for a broken society. Uh, it was also a catalyst for economic expansion, uh, first uh, that was realized by the North uh, during the Civil War. Uh, but then in the years that follow, uh, followed, uh, it would be seen as a catalyst for political, economic, uh, and religious expansions uh, and ambitions on a global stage. So, uh, you know, it's not the only kind of material to be theologized or sacralized in such a way. Uh, if you look at the history of Britain and coal, for instance, coal, too, was kind of deemed uh, sacred uh, as divine uh, for the way it allowed Britain to kind of assume leadership in the civilization of the world. But oil uh, paired with this kind of uh, sense of, of its religious and political importance was definitely unique to the United States. So, you know, I follow pastors, uh, geologists who scour the earth with their Bibles and spiritualist devices, uh, who really take to heart this sense that uh, oil is God's special blessing to the United States. Uh, I look at uh, a number of Methodist circuit preachers, for instance, uh, who along their uh, circuits in south uh, in the southwest are going to also look for oil uh, in very 
concrete ways combined their vocation as preachers uh, and amateur geologists. And so this kind of pairing uh, of, of, of oil and uh, the imagining of oil in sacred terms uh, is something that, that, again, plays out theologically uh, with the help of these preachers and, and others who are so invested in the industry. Uh, it's also going to raise tensions uh, within Christianity. Not everyone will uh, appreciate the ways in which oil, big oil, and big religion are paired kind of as the twin pillars of American exceptionalism, uh, and they will fight that as well. And, you know, one of the strains that goes through my book is perhaps muted somewhat is this this tension, the way in which muckrakers, uh, the way in which anti-oil activists are going to be present from the very beginning. Um, Those like Ida Tarbell, who are very religious in their own way, are going to see oil as a blight, not a blessing. And, and, and so from the beginning, there's this kind of third way of viewing uh, oil and American life. Uh, and uh, it's going to be, again, equally morally charged uh, as they take on big oil uh, in the early 20th century throughout the century as a whole. Dang, it's so interesting. I love in, in your book, I love all the stuff about, um, especially in, in, in the end, about the end times and finding oil in Israel. We'll talk about that later, but I'm so, I was so like floored when I read that part. Um, such an interesting combination. Well, okay. So sometimes evangelicalism is thought of as like a certain, just like set of beliefs that people have and they're conservative and, you know, it's kind of like, who knows why, but in your book, uh, you answer exactly why that's the case. Um, or you at least give us some insight into like why evangelicalism is a specific brand of conservatism. Um, you know, because you mentioned how on some occasions the the money of the evangelical oilmen went to building up evangelical cultural cultural institutions and political power. Um, one example that stands out to me is uh, Lyman Stewart, who you talk about a lot as sort of the representative of wildcat Christianity, um, who ended up using his money to establish what would become Biola University, which is a really interesting kind of thing. So could you talk about some of the political characteristics to his philanthropy? Like how, you know, is that is that the best example of, of Lyman Stewart using his money to kind of build up uh, a certain type of Christendom? Or are there others? Is this a pretty common practice, I guess, is the question I'm sort of wanted to ask. Right, right. Well, I mean, it is common, a pretty common practice. And, and again, just doing the research on this, my my initial foray into this was simply to follow the money and, and just see the scale of oil funding in American church life. Uh, that I, I've continued on that track throughout the research while even embracing other ways of looking at this relationship between faith and oil, for instance, looking at life on the oil patch itself. Uh, but following the money is absolutely key. And, you know, I, I, I zero in on a on a few oil rich families in particular of course the rockefellers through four generations but then on the more kind of wildcat christianity conservative side uh the two families that do dominate that narrative are first the stewarts uh lyman and milton stewart lyman stewart in particular uh and then the pews uh which are really going to take over uh kind of uh the uh, authority within this culture in the 1930s going forward. So in any case, your highlighting of Lyman Stewart, I think, is, is totally appropriate. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Stewart uh, starts up his business in Western Pennsylvania, and he's forced out of that by the Rockefellers. So this civil war is going to continue to play out because Stewart's going to move west and hit it big, start Union Oil Company. And as you say, uh, not just start to take on the Rockefellers in business, 
but to do so in philanthropy, uh, to put uh, his money and the brothers as a whole, their money behind uh, the kind of the institutional and ideological priorities of, of this conservative wildcat Christianity. Uh, how so? Well, again, you mentioned uh, they're going to fund uh, Church of the Open Door and Biola, a church and a school, which are really deliberately in their minds uh, created to offset uh, the University of Chicago, which is funded by Rockefeller, uh, as well as Riverside Chapel in New York. So there is a, a, a a way in which the Stuarts and Lyman in particular sees his vocation as countering uh, the Rockefeller way in the church at every turn, a way that he considers uh, moving American society towards secularism, uh, towards uh, internationalism, uh, and this is going against uh, his own kind of theological and political beliefs. Uh, he's also going to fund missionaries uh, in China and in Latin America. Again, trying to shore up what he considers the fundamental uh, virtues of Christianity, the, you know, the heightened sense of, of, a per, of personal salvation as the only way to salvation for society writ large, the priority of the Bible, uh, the need to evangelize, and in Stuart's life, uh, a kind of a conviction that the world is coming to an end at any moment this premillennialist conviction that Christ is going to return uh, soon and in the darkness, the best we can do now uh, is not re restructure society as the Rockefellers seek to do, but to simply save, uh, save souls, save individuals to Christ. Uh, all of his institutions, his philanthropy as a whole, is going to be driven by that imperative. And it's one uh, that, uh, by extension, is also, go also going to shore up the values of kind of free market, uh, free market capitalism uh, and uh, what the uh, kind of small producers, independent oil sector uh, holds dearly in the face of the Rockefeller Leviathan. So, uh, yes, and Stewart is going to be absolutely crucial to the rise of, of this fundamentalist movement in the early 20th century. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for laying that out. It's a really good way uh, to have just kind of I don't know, setting the stage for where things start to pivot, as you were saying earlier, um, during uh, the the post-war years and then into the Cold War. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, one story that you follow in the book is the creation of the, the National Association of Evangelicals. And you say that they're sort of unified by their opposition to the New Deal. And then they're they're tied as well into this network of the, the oil industry. So what ties all these interests together? You know, why, uh, why for example, are the kind of emerging coalition led by people like Billy Graham and others um, interested in establishing relationships with uh, oil folks? And, um, you know, how do you kind of see these histories uh, continuing and, and moving forward uh, based on those competing uh, interests that you were just kind of laying out for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, there's a few different ways we could go with that. Uh, you know, in terms of what is new evangelicalism, uh, this is, you know, uh, kind of a new label for the fundamentalist movement of the early 20th century that was funded by Lyman Stewart. Uh, during World War II and in the years that follow, evangelicals around the, the country who, who are trying to adhere to, again, these traditional uh, theologies and, and values of yesteryear uh, are going to do so by constructing a new kind of network, a new network of institutions, a new network of associations, the National Association of Evangelicals, of course, being the signature to that. And in general, uh, these are, you know, conservatives who 
uh, are going to stand for the fundamentals as they see it, but they want to also do it in a more ironic, culturally engaging uh, kind of uh, sensitivity. They don't want to uh, run from American society as much as they want to redeem it. So Billy Graham, NAE being, uh, of course, ultimate examples of this kind of a new engagement with American culture in an effort to redeem it. That is uh, a very ambitious effort, a very sweeping uh, intent, and that requires substantial funding. Uh, and it's during the 19, late 30s, 1940s, uh, as this kind of new, new evangelicalism is emerging, this new network, uh, that we're going to see the, the kind of the coming together of, of shared interests. Uh, J. Howard Pugh and Billy Graham are, of course, a classic example of this. Pugh, as I just briefly mentioned earlier, is really going to become politically awakened in the 30s in opposition to the New Deal. And that is going to be because of what he sees as the overreach of the federal government to regulate uh, oil, to regulate his commodity, uh, and to regulate his business as a whole, uh, and also at the same time to empower labor to a degree that Pew is not happy with. And so those are his economic interests. He's also conservative Presbyterian. He's also worried about what an enlarged state means. And in his eyes, that means creeping towards socialism uh, and to secularism. And so this anti-statism is going to be kind of really at the heart of his politics and of his religious politics at this time. Billy Graham's going to share that. And those who join Graham and Pugh and the NAE are going to become champions then in the 40s and 50s of kind of an anti-New Deal conservatism that seeks to roll back in a large federal state and also tackle uh, even more uh, dangerous, as they see it, communist menace that is emerging in the Cold War period. So the interests are paired. the money is important to evangelicals if they want to build these institutions. And who are the richest of the rich at this point is these independent oil men who struck it rich in the early 20th century in Texas and Oklahoma. And now in the 50s, uh, 40s, 50s, 60s are anxious to use their money to support their religious and political causes. And so Pew and others are going to open their pocketbooks to the uh, National Association of Evangelicals and to Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham will be uh, quite, uh, of course, appreciative of that. Uh, he is now able to build his ministry. And as I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, just a couple of examples of this. I mean, the first two movies that Billy Graham's uh, uh, production company produces are about Texas and Texas oil. The first one being Mr. Texas, the second Oil Town USA, which comes out in the 1950s. And again, the message here is that, you know, these redeemed wildcatters and booming oil towns of the Southwest are the great hope for America in an age of socialist threats, in an age of secularism. Uh, these are examples of true personal faith, uh, as well as faith in the market, faith in democracy and action. So this kind of collection of, of uh, this, this worldview really is fused at this, at this moment. And, uh, you know, we kind of know the rest of the story and we, we can talk more about that. It, it, creates this very powerful kind of religious movement that is also going to have a political effect through the lobbying and activism of eventually uh, the Christian right, uh, which is going to emerge in the 1970s, of course, uh, and 1980s. Uh, again, I can, I can articulate it more clearly if you'd like, but the, the argument here is that this, this bundle of uh, concerns uh, reaches from uh, kind of 
of family values and religious values and concerns uh, with a state uh, becoming dominant uh, at the cost of local church life, uh, bundled together with these worries of, of kind of collectivism and worries of uh, overregulation of one's uh, control of the land and its, and, and its resources. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned socialism and the Cold War, and man, I love talking about those two things a lot. Uh, so, so maybe I can ask a, a kind of a follow-up question. So, um, is the is the fear of the big state or the like the um, you know the the looming secularism of um, of the Soviet Union is that kind of like the the connection there for evangelicalism? Was it was it socialism specifically that they were worried about, or was it like a, a big state? I guess that's maybe a, a weird distinction to make, but. Um, yeah, what was the right. what was the hang up for new evangelicalism and like the Cold War? Right. Well, I guess another term which which kind of brings these together uh, is is you know this this collectivism as they worried uh, you know as they they spoke out against collectivism being uh, again the conglomeration of business like we see with the Rockefellers and Standard Oil monopolies or collectivism in the sense of uh, more directly an enlarged state, a, a state that is creeping into the daily lives of average Americans, uh, whether it be, you know, enforcing certain standards of public education or, uh, you know, mechanisms of control and business and so forth. Uh, and then, of course, the ultimate within this fear of collectivism is, is socialism in the communist state, uh, in which all uh, values of the individual, all authority of the individual, of an individual to approach God, uh, to approach uh, daily life on their terms, is going to be stamped out. And so this is this is a broad umbrella term, collectivism, that's going to bring all of these kind of concerns with the state, concerns with Cold War communism, uh, into direct, uh, you know, kind of relief for them on on a very uh, personal level. So. Uh, you know, this is, uh, again, uh, at the heart of what uh, New Evangelicalism is uh, in the 1950s and 60s, certainly, uh, and it's very much at the heart of, of what uh, those kind of independent oilmen who are backing this movement are about as well. Uh, you know, they are the ultimate free enterprisers. They see the oil industry as the embodiment of free market capitalism, uh, and the worst thing that the United States could do would be to quell, to squash that spirit. Uh, and so they, they ask the government to remove its regulations. They ask the government to support the wildcat effort in the 50s and 60s to produce really uh, an America first energy policy to, to allow oilmen in the West uh, to drill uh, in new frontiers uh, throughout North America. So uh, that, that is all within uh, under the cloud really of Cold War fears that are transpiring, of course, on an international basis. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, so far, we've been talking a lot about uh, the US and Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, but you mentioned earlier that you're from Alberta, and you, you wear that on your sleeve in the book. Um, and I live in Toronto. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. Um, I was really curious to see all of that in your book, because Alberta, obviously today is especially right now, uh, known uh, for having a giant oil patch. I mean, even the uh, the new Democrats who just had the, the government, the ostensible social Democrats, um, had to sort of play the oil game, I guess. Um, but uh, that province is also the birthplace of uh, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, a, a party that used to exist that included a lot of socialist Christians, too. 
Um, so do you have any ideas about how to make sense of Alberta as both kind of like the seedbed for democratic socialism in Canada, but it's also one of the most right-wing provinces in, in Canada today? How does that story kind of relate to or differ from the, uh, the U.S. story you've been telling so far? Mm-hmm, right. No, and I'd certainly, you know, welcome your feedback on in terms of the history of the CCF. But but you do point out uh, uh, a very uh, dynamic period in Western politics, uh, of course, the 1930s. And uh, you know, both of these movements, I, I think, one could say, grow out of of a of a collection of shared complaints and fears, uh, and they're in some ways going to promote similar formulas, you know, attract a similar constituency, primarily uh, rural Albertans and those, of course, living in Saskatchewan as well. Uh, Those who are suffering uh, because of the depression, uh, those who are in the in the face of depression, uh, trying to figure out uh, why they have have lost control of their own production, uh, why they are you know, suffering at the hands uh, of of an economy run by distant banks uh, and distant bankers and politicians. So, you know, this, this the populism at the heart of both is is in many ways shared. Uh, anti bank, anti uh, Ottawa, anti big business as well. Uh, the two movements, though, are going to diverge. Uh, almost immediately, I think, in some important ways. And again, I'd I'd certainly welcome any insight you can offer. I mean, uh, you know, the CCF, uh, again, growing out of these these impulses, is going to look to, you know, kind of a more radical, uh, first of all, kind of a social gospel of of, uh, kind of restructuring and reforming society, uh, and are going to, I think, espouse more aggressive uh, kind of... uh, uh, reforming efforts in terms of restructuring capitalism itself. Social credit is never going to take on uh, capitalism, or at least its its its, its structures uh, at at its core. They're going to want to revise some, but ultimately, this this is a populist movement with a very conservative bent. Um, and so, you know, it's going to you know, toy with some ideas that are going to tweak capitalism. You know, kind of. Uh, share the wealth, uh, wealth distribution methods, for instance, through government monthly payments to citizens, uh, toy with alternative script, uh, but never really kind of undermine the, 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 the system itself. Uh, William Eberhardt, of course, is, is the head of social credit in the 1930s. And you could see, I think, in the 30s, more fl- uh, free flow between social credit and CCF. After uh, he passes away and Ernest Manning takes over as Premier of Alberta and head of the social credit uh, party from the 40s to the 60s, social credit is going to shift more decidedly to kind of a conservative uh, kind of right wing of the political spectrum. Uh, and that, that again, also goes to another difference, I think, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, is uh, my sense is social credit uh, is also always from the beginning forward tied to kind of more conservative, evangelical uh, belief structures and institutions. Uh, Eberhardt, for instance, is going to start his own school of prophecy. Uh, it's also going to be more premillennialist uh, in its understanding of the here and now and the life thereafter, more apocalyptic. Uh, why, why does that matter? Well, again, slightly uh, less impulse within social credit uh, to look at long-term restructuring and reforming of society as the ultimate goal, something that's different from the CCF, of course, which aspires to that. So, uh, and you know, as as the post-World War II years 
uh, play out by the 1970s, uh, Alberta social credit is very much in line with the uh, the Republican right uh, of of uh, of the U.S. Yeah, for sure. I mean the. <laughs> Uh, the story of the CCF is really complicated too in Alberta kind of um, compromised in some ways by having to appeal to those rural folks and uh, also trying to, you know, put this radical vision forward. But uh, I, what you're saying is also so fascinating because we had just looked at Bethany Morton's book to serve God in Walmart. And she tells a, a very similar story of the transformation of sort of uh, left-leaning or progressive populism eventually uh, playing right into the hands of, you know, the the construction of, like, the Christian foundations of, of industry. So in that respect, anyway, um, the story you're telling about oil just seems to be a, a really similar mechanism in Alberta, which I think is a surprise to me anyhow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think you're, you're right on there, yeah. Um, well, we're, we're going to get close to the end of the hour here, so... Um... I'm really excited to ask this last question. <laughs> um, so yeah, as people who, I mean, Dean and I, we find all of the stuff, you know, the behind the scenes economics of evangelicalism, like really fascinating. Um, it's, it's so cool to see so cool and interesting to see how like materially these folks kind of build up a Christian infrastructure. Um, so your book is full of these kinds of interesting stories. So I hope people Go and check it out. But one of them that stands out, um, that's probably the most peculiar story, is towards the very end of your book. Um, you describe John Brown, who's a Texas oilman, and uh, his company that he's affiliated with, Design Oil and Gas, um, as like a venture that was out to find oil in Israel. Um, but it also has some pretty interesting connections to dispensationalism, as you kind of have mentioned already. But could you kind of tell us a little bit more about that story and the connections with oil and Israel and dispensationalism? Sure, happy to. Yes, this is actually one of the more. Uh, well, I mean, I, I this is a labor of love throughout, and even though it, it, it did take me a while and was a lot of uh, sweat and tears, uh, it, it this project kept me going throughout. There's just, as you mentioned, so many great stories to tell, and I do hope people will uh, in, enjoy that part of it. Uh, and you know, one of the angles that did kind of surprise me and that did keep me kind of glued to the sources is, is the Israel connection. Uh, we know, of course, of, of the role that evangelicals play uh, in the politics surrounding Israel. Uh, one of the reasons, of course, the United States is so uh, attached to Israel, so eager to defend it, of course, is uh, our evangelicals who have long supported Israel. And going back to Lyman Stewart's day, see Israel is absolutely crucial to the unfolding of the end times. Israel needs to be uh, present uh, in a state because that is where, of course, the, the last days are going to play out and Christ is going to return. So this is all kind of woven into the uh, prophetic beliefs, the premillennial be- beliefs of evangelicals. Uh, there's another angle to this story, and that's the one I tell, and that is oil is is very much uh, at the heart of this as well. Uh, one way it is so because uh, as we move across the mid the mid 20th century, uh, the first uh, kind of oil companies, of course, to go out into the world to explore to go into the Middle East uh, are these large uh, companies, offshoots of Standard Oil, three different Standard offshoots, for instance. These are the majors representing the Rockefeller Way, uh, and they're going to move into Saudi Arabia, which I talk about at length, uh, and into other kind of Arab-producing countries. That means that Israel is still kind of going to remain uh, outside uh, the realm of oil production when Israel becomes a state. 
state. It's looking for its energy independence. It wants oil to be discovered within. Uh, who is Israel going to look to but the independent oil oilmen of the Southwest? Uh, major companies can't go into Israel because of their association with Arab-producing countries. So we hear to see now within that, this moment, the 50s and 60s, uh, independent oil from the Southwest and evangelicalism, evangelicals uh, and independent oilmen, one in the same in, in many cases, uh, kind of looking to Israel for more than one reason. And so this is a marriage that is going to have economic as well as political ramifications right to the present day. Uh, you mentioned John Brown, uh, Zion Oil and Gas, which is one of these uh, ventures, uh, very devout uh, kind of premillennialist oilman who's convinced Christ is going to return someday to Israel. He's hoping in the meantime to provide energy independence to Israel. Hasn't been too successful, but there are numerous other companies. Uh, in fact, there's been a recent article on just uh, some of the recent offshore gas finds in Israel uh, that has been undertaken by Texas independent companies, one of which is called Ness Oil. So all referring to, you know, kind of scripture, to the Bible. Uh, and it, incidentally, and I'll just finish on this point, also dovetails and, and helps explain really uh, our current politics as well. The uh, Trump administration, both in terms of its environmental policies, its efforts to deregulate the West, uh, its, its kind of marriage to independent energy companies of the Southwest, and its support of Israel, all very much wrapped up in, in, in kind of this network uh, of interests that stretch back to the 1940s and 1950s. Yeah, well, uh, maybe that's a good note for us to sort of close on. If I could ask you one question about the the contemporary scene and how your history opens up certain questions. I mean, I know it's it can be dangerous to ask historians to say something about what's going on now, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, the like a lot of people are talking about evangelicalism and its support for Donald Trump, and some people kind of scratch their heads over that because they say, you know, there's something hypocritical, I guess, about supporting somebody like Donald Trump if you believe the the family values of evangelicalism. But as you told us earlier, there's more than just family values. There's there's oil values and other kinds of values. Um, so, you know, as, as people are trying to make sense of all of this, of the political landscape now, and maybe even the... Uh, the changing or unchanging nature of evangelicalism as it, as it relates to these political ventures and uh, political economy. How do you think that this story that you've told about oil um, opens these kinds of questions up? I mean, do you, do you kind of see these things as unsurprising? Are you are you following them with intrigue as much as everybody else? Uh, what kind of insights would, would somebody maybe be able to get to uh, with your history in mind? Right. Well, I, I certainly am much more comfortable wearing the hat as historian uh, rather than prophet. So I'm, I'm not exactly clear or, or know where we're going next. And I'm sure most people share that sentiment. Uh, you know, I guess I would just highlight what, what, what would be some of the takeaways uh, from the book, or I would hope for, for the present moment, uh, anticipating the, the future. Uh, I mentioned one of them, of course, and again, to, to maybe harp on the politics here to stress the politics is, you know, connections to Israel, of course, and the Trump administration being very supportive of that. Uh, secondly, kind of the America first energy politics of Trump. Uh, I think we do damage if we minimize this uh, and what it means to those who are not just working in the oil patches of the Southwest, but who are attending uh, the oil patches churches, uh, who are uh, listening to messages uh, from preachers who are, uh, you know, 
uh, in front of pulpits or behind pulpits of, of large megachurches funded by oil. I mean, th- there's a way in which Trump has tapped into that entire culture. Uh, you know, Vice President Mike Pence, for instance, was just down in West Texas uh, in April touring an independent energy company's new rig, kind of christening it in some ways. And, you know, there he kind of proclaimed to this proud West Texas audience the three pillars of American greatness, faith, freedom, and vast natural resources. God-given resources, he says, that will make you know, America more prosperous. So that is at the heart of kind of the America first agenda, every bit as much as some of the other kind of social policies uh, that we're for, more familiar with and, and help us understand why evangelicals support Trump. Uh, so I would hope that, you know, people would, would make those connections as well. And And finally, I guess, looking forward, I guess the other more general takeaway is that, you know, uh, I would hope that we can understand better why pipeline politics, why energy politics tend to be so uh, morally charged. Uh, I've already, you know, kind of mapped out the wildcat Christian way and, and just why it it's so animated by its attachment to this resource. But on the flip side, you know, we've got younger evangelicals who are praying on pipe and joining Bill McKibben, who's kind of like the Ida Tarbell of today, and and channeling their kind of evangelical sensibilities and their passions into uh, kind of a, a creation care agenda and agenda uh, to uh, kind of unseat uh, the kind of dominance of, of carbon energy in modern uh, modern America. So, uh, you know, I don't know where it goes next, but I can certainly understand, and I hope readers uh, will understand better too, just why this is such a this is an issue that affects uh, culture, it affects daily life, uh, it affects life in the pews and the pulpits of America as much as it does uh, the pocketbook. Cool, Darren. Thank you so much for joining us and kind of talking through this with us. Um, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Dean. It was, it was my privilege. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard. You can toss us a couple of your own hard-earned bucks, buckaroos, dollars. Um, I can't think of an oil word for money, but I wish I could. Uh, you can send us some of that money at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and uh, not so much Facebook anymore, but definitely Twitter. Uh, you can also send us an email at themagnificast at gmail.com. And as always, our music, the intro is from Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. Thanks again to Darren Dochek. Go buy his very good book. There won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.